good morning. My name is Dave Olszewski. I am the associate pastor here at Risen Church, and it's my privilege to continue on in our series in Colossians called Firmly Established. Uh, we've been in this series for, I think, since May. It's been a while. Uh, so I'm not going to recap everything that we've talked about because then we wouldn't go anyplace new, right? <laughs> so I encourage you to read the letter to the Colossians. Uh, but what we have looked at in the past couple weeks is this idea of the difference between our old self and our new self, right? If we are raised in Christ, then our old self was crucified with Christ on the cross, and yet we have this indwelling sin that stubbornly tries to come alive again that we need to put to death, right? We are given the good command to put that mess to death, and not only to put that to death, but to walk in the newness of life that only comes if we are raised in Christ, right? We don't have to think up all of these original things. We are given all of these things in Christ, and that's a reason to celebrate. So our newness of life is not a walk of drudgery, but it is a victory parade, okay? So uh, we are going to continue in that vein today in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Before we read those verses, uh, I want to talk about the movie Nacho Libre. Okay, Nacho Libre is one of my favorite movies. Uh, we love to watch it with our family, and uh, it's hilarious, right? Jack Black does a good job. Uh, I wish I could do some of his facial expressions. But it's interesting, if you take a step back and actually analyze what's going on, it's really interesting. Because Jack Black plays this character, whose name is Ignacio, and he's a monk or a priest serving in a monastery in Mexico, right? His main duty is to prepare all the meals for the people living at the monastery. And he doesn't really do this with much joy. Like, he doesn't get much satisfaction out of it. He kind of complains about it. And so one day, he's actually given the opportunity to do something different. So he's given the opportunity to go to the house of a man sick with influenza. He shows up. There's a dude sitting in a chair with his head back, and instead of diagnosing what's going on, he just assumes he's dead and launches into a eulogy like it's a funeral, right? So he finishes his eulogy, and the guy wakes up and scares the mess out of him because he's not dead, obviously, right? <laughs> but what do we see in that situation? We see that he was so concerned about himself, right? It was all about his own performance that he failed to see what he was there to do, right? He was there to actually minister to the sick man and provide for his needs, and instead he was just focused on himself. We also see that when he's in the worship service, he's not paying attention, right? He's not sitting under the authority of God's word. What is he doing? He's drawing pictures, fantasizing about being a luchador, a Mexican wrestler, right? So instead of seeking the life that's in God's word, he's actually fantasizing about receiving the praise of man, right? So the whole picture is that he's unhappy living as a priest. Ignacio is not happy living as a priest. This is further seen outwardly, right? He wears this very humble brown robe as a priest, and that's meant not to draw the eyes to him, but to draw the eyes to God. Well, he's eager to exchange that robe for expensive-looking clothes, right? He wants to go into town, and he puts these clothes on, and he wants everybody to be impressed with him. It's designed to draw the eyes to him. Ignacio desired the praise of man more than the pleasure of God. Because he didn't seek his happiness in God, he became increasingly discontent, selfish, and bitter, right? So is this a description of what a faithful priest is? Like if you think faithful priest, does Ignacio, does Ignacio match that description? I think we probably can agree with no, no. That's not a great example of what a faithful priest is. But it's a useful mirror to look at our own spiritual life and say, does my own spiritual life resemble Ignacio's in any way? It's worth thinking about. So why would I open with an illustration about a priest? Well, if you are in Christ, you have been given the identity of priest, right? And it's always been this way from the beginning. If you go back to Exodus 19, verse 6, God says to his people, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
And it's echoed again in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2. He writes, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So here the picture gets bigger, right? Not only are we priests, but we are the temple. So the temple and the priests are in view here. And then again in verse 9, he says, you are a royal priesthood. So the verses we're going to look at today, even though they don't contain the words priest or temple, it's all about our lives as priests in God, and it's all about our life together in God's temple. So let's read those verses now. It's Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here's my big idea this morning. Everything we're going to look at has to do with this statement. As priests of God, we joyfully participate in the building of God's holy, happy temple. As priests of God, we joyfully participate in the building of God's holy, happy temple. So in these two, in these two verses, uh, I see three distinct sections. So the first section is going to be hydrate. The second uh, section is going to be participate. And the third section is going to be celebrate. There's a pattern in there if you're paying attention. Okay, so the first thing is, verse 16, hydrate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that you is a singular pronoun. So it's talking about each of us individually as Christians should have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So just as we can't live physically without water, we can't live or survive spiritually without God's word. So we must constantly, as priests of God, hydrate on the living water of God's word. The words of Jesus say this in Matthew 4, 4. Jesus states, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it is our life. But it's even more than that. If we look at Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of Christ isn't just some collection of books, right? It's not a book of books that's like any other book, right? It is life. It is spiritual life, and it is supernatural because the spirit of God is connected to the word of God. We can't separate those things, even if we want to, right? Uh, there's a pastor named John Woodhouse who makes the case that whenever we see the Hebrew word ruach, that's kind of fun to say, ruach, and the Greek word pneuma, these can mean wind, breath, and spirit. So the case is that anytime we see spirit of God in the scripture, that can also be translated as breath of God. So think about it. Can you make words without breath? No. You can mouth, you can like try but they're not actually words unless there's breath there, right? And so that is the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Essentially, the Word of God is carried on the Spirit of God to wherever it's headed. So we can't separate the Spirit from the Word. We see these examples throughout Scripture. Probably the most well-known one is in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? There's, there's always a connection between the Spirit and the Word. So the good news is that the more the Word of God fills us, the more sensitive we are to the life-giving work of the Spirit, right? So if we're Word-filled, then we're going to be Spirit-filled. And in this first part of the verse, the emphasis of Paul is on the Word dwelling in us richly, right? He doesn't say, let the Word of Christ kind of dwell in you, or let the word of Christ dwell in you meagerly or barely, right? He says richly, because it talks about 
the richness of the spiritual life that's available in God that we get through the word. George Mueller uh, is kind of a famous Christian uh, from England in the 1800s, and he had this to say about the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. He writes, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. The vigor or the, the potency, the strength, the energy, the fruitfulness of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. Additionally, there's a really cool Scottish preacher who lived in the 1800s. His name, his name is Alexander White. And he talks about our spiritual life being represented by a tree. He writes, when the root is weak or diseased, or when it has no deepness of earth, then any passing locust will soon kill the tree. But when the root is sound and strong and deep-seated and well-watered, the tree will blossom and bear fruit and will survive all the locusts that you can send up against it. That's the beauty and the love of God that we have when the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Now, you might be hearing me say, you need to do this task more. You need to do this task more often. And I can assure you, that is not what I am saying. I am calling you to enjoy and celebrate the greatest treasure, right? We enjoy and celebrate God through his word because his word cannot be separated from him, right? It's a special revelation to us so that we can know him and enjoy him and love him. So it's not a task, it's a treasure, right? You might be like, oh, well, I tried reading the word. I tried reading God's word, and there are a lot of commandments in it, right? God's always trying to tell me what to do. <laughs> so how do we look at that? Well, if we try to uh, separate God's word from God, if we try to separate God's law from God, then we'll get into all kinds of trouble. God's good word comes with God. God's law is actually given to us not to make God happy, like, oh, I'm so glad I'm in charge, I can make these people do anything I want. No, he gives us the law for our flourishing. These are good fences. These are good fences that keep us from doing stupid things, that bring us misery. So the ultimate goal, should we do God's law all the time? Yes, we should. But the higher goal is to actually love God and therefore love his law because we understand the function of the law in its proper place. If we separate God from the law, that's when we get into the self-righteousness, legalistic side, right? We say, well, I, I think I can do this on my own. And we all start there, right? Because we've separated God from his law. We can get into the other ditch, which says, well, God loves me. Like, God loves me too much. He doesn't require anything, right? It's just grace. It's just grace all the time, right? So, like, I should sin, so grace increases. Oh, snap, that's Romans 6, right? <laughs> right? So we must, we must not try to break apart what God says not to separate, right? We love God, therefore we love God's word, and we understand that God's commandments are good, therefore we love his law, and we don't put it in the wrong place, okay? It's for our flourishing, and it also protects us. Earlier in Colossians in chapter 2, uh, there, are, there are a couple warnings that Paul gives us, right? We're warned against being deluded with plausible arguments, and those arguments are, in a sense, a word that leads us away from Christ. And then in verse 8, he says, uh, he warns us against being taken captive by worldly philosophy or empty deceit. So it's the same thing. There is a word that leads us to Christ and points us to Christ. There are many words that lead us away from Christ to our destruction, right? Now, spoiler alert, everything that we consume on TV or radio or whatever it is, everything we consume in the media is trying to catechize us. What do I mean by that? It's trying to get knowledge in us so that we will repeat that knowledge. And all of that knowledge has a worldview. Either 
It's cut and dry. Either it's in line with the truth of God's word or it's not. It's, it's that simple, right? Think about, have you ever thought about the laugh track on a comedy show? That laugh track is not neutral. The laugh track is there to train you to think these things are funny. It's not neutral. It's training us. And if we have our brains off, we will be trained for our destruction if those things go against the word of God. So there are many warnings in the New Testament about being sober-minded, being alert, right? We can't turn our brains off. Just because something has a Christian label on it doesn't mean it's true to the word of God, okay? So be alert, be sober-minded. Loving God's law protects us from harmful error, all right? When I was thinking about this, I thought about my, when my kids go to Arby's, right? So they get their soda cup, they go over to the soda machine, and they get one soda, right? But it's only that much because they're going to get the second soda, and then they're going to fill up with all 12 sodas in the same cup that are at the soda machine, right? So what do you end up with? You end up with a pile of sugar nonsense that doesn't really taste like anything, okay? This is not what we are called to spiritually, okay? We are called to have a cup of pure water that is the word of God, right? And not to pollute it with anything. Because the question is, how much poison does it take to make that pure cup of water harmful? And the answer is the first part, right? The first little bit starts to make it harmful. And that's, that's why we must dwell in the word of Christ, so that it will dwell in us richly, right? It protects us and nourishes us. The truth is that all of us right now have something dwelling in us richly. All of us do. The question is, is it the word of Christ? If we're all like a saturated sponge that's filled with something, when someone pokes you, what comes out? Is it the word of Christ? Or is it something a little poisonous. Maybe you need to look at what your priorities are. And again, I'm not calling you to a task. I'm calling you to a treasure. So we need to look at our lives and say, if this is so important, then what do we need to get rid of in order to let the pure word of Christ dwell in us richly? It might even be a good thing, but picking the better thing is better. Okay, so we hydrate, as priests of God, we hydrate on God's word so that we can participate. The point of being filled with God's word is so that it will overflow in love to others. Let's go back to verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here we see the picture of being filled with the word and then taking that word and in wisdom applying it to reality, right? Reality is life in the temple as priests. Now, the, the, uh, the emphasis is on wisdom here, right? So what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the link between knowledge and real life. We take knowledge, we apply it skillfully, that is wisdom, right? When we apply knowledge foolishly, that is destructive, right? So we want to take the word of Christ and connect it to real life in wisdom. So if we're supposed to participate in the work of the temple, like what's the goal of that? What does temple work look like? What does it not look like? Well, just like our old self that was dead in sin looks radically different from our new self, which is in Christ, the temple of God ought to be starkly distinct from the world. Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's a little bit of a gut punch. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. But we've already seen this in Colossians chapter 3. Right? A couple weeks ago, Clayton was talking about the lists that we see in chapter 3. And when we look at verses 5 through 8, we see 
that this all has to do with self-serving and seeking our own pleasure, and it involves tearing others down because we're super insecure and fearful, right? So in a sense, it's identity crisis. And John talked about this last week, right? When we're living for ourselves, we are in a perpetual identity crisis because we're trying to build our own kingdom. And what that looks like is when you build a sandcastle in the waves on the beach, it's constantly getting destroyed. And so we're frustrated and miserable, right? But that's not where it ends because starting in verse nine in chapter three, through essentially the end of the chapter, this is the picture that we get of faithful, joyful, thankful priests operating in their identity in the temple of God for the glory of God, right? It's all about considering others first, being patient, serving others, forgiving. So instead of an identity crisis, when we operate in our priestly identity in these ways, it's identity practice. We're practicing being priests in the temple of God building the kingdom of God according to the word of God. Now, you can't do this by yourself. You can't one another if you're a one-man wolf pack, right? So you must, you must be a part of God's people in order to participate. And again, it's not a task. It's a treasure, right? It's a conduit of joy when we serve others instead of living for ourselves. So I see two key ways that we participate. The first way is that priests participate in unifying worship. Now, I'm going to reference the Nacho Libre illustration again, right? Because essentially what's going on there is there's a wrestler identity that has certain qualities and characteristics, and there's a priestly identity at least the priestly identity that he should have been uh, aspiring to, right? So there are very clear differences in these identities. So already, we can say that the wrestler identity pridefully says, everything I get is for me, and I earned it, right? That probably sounds familiar. Maybe we've said something like that. But to contrast that, the priestly identity humbly says, everything I have is a gift from God. And it's to be used to bless others. There's an outward movement there of what we receive. So as priests, remember that this isn't divorced from verse 16. We're supposed to teach and admonish, and I would include encourage and correct in there. That's all implied. So as priests, we teach and remind each other who God is through acts of service, which then produces thanksgiving to God from all of us. So it's this endless cycle, and it's a good cycle, because God fills us and dwells in us, and then we pour out of that for the good of others, and then God gets the glory from everybody involved. Both the giver and the receiver are all praising God, but it doesn't stop there, because God is still dwelling in us and filling us, and then we pour ourselves out. So this thanksgiving and worship and service and love just keeps going on itself, and it's all for his glory. One of the best sections of scripture that I think portrays this picture is in 2 Corinthians 9. If you look at 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 12, Paul writes, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply. So as we go through here, I forgot to say, as we go through here, look for receiving words, giving words, and worship words. So when we see supply and multiply, we are receiving that from God, okay? So he who supplies that will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. There's the giving, okay? And increase the harvest of your righteousness. So that's receiving. Well, is that physical or spiritual? Trick question, it's both, okay? Moving on, you will be enriched in every way, so there's more receiving, to be generous in every way, there's more giving, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There's more worship. For the ministry of this service, there's more giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, there's more receiving, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. 
So do you see this endless cycle of receiving from God and pouring out to others, and it's all worship to God? It's beautiful. And it's all done with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now, we might be tempted to think of thankfulness or worship as a feeling, but it is not. It is in a direction, right? We always thank someone or something. We always worship something or someone. It doesn't go into a void. So the worship is to God. It's not just a feeling of worship, right? So I see thankfulness as kind of the thermometer of our hearts, right? How thankful we are kind of indicates where our heart is spiritually, whether we're tending toward that wrestler identity or we're tending toward that priestly identity, all right? So you might be like, "Mm, you know, I struggle. I genuinely struggle to be thankful. So how do I get from generally unthankful to thankful? Well, uh, my first advice would be to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. (laughs) Because it's not just a book. It's God's revelation of himself so that we can have a clear picture of who God is so that we can worship the true God who is love, who is justice, who is righteousness, who gave his son for us when we were dead, when we were spiritually dead, that's when Christ died for us and raised us to life. That sounds like a pretty good God to read about and worship. So, reading the word of Christ to get more God, to love God more, will increase your thanksgiving, will increase your thankfulness. I guarantee it. In the word of Christ, again, we're reminded of God's provision and promises. So if you are in the worst of circumstances, this is the beauty of this. When you are in the worst of earthly circumstances, the word of God assures you that God is in control. And if you are a child of God, everything you receive from God to include those seemingly awful circumstances are for your good and for his glory. We don't have to understand it all to appreciate that and be thankful in that, right? That is the beauty of new life in Christ. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly to produce thanksgiving. The second thing is to pour yourself out in service to others. You might think, how is that going to help? Well, normally we get bogged down in this rut of our eyes being on ourselves, right? We just look at our own circumstances and we start putting up the banners for our pity party, and all of the eyes are on us all the time because it's the worst. It might be tough. I'm not saying the situation isn't tough, but what I'm saying is there's guaranteed worship according to the word of God when you serve others in the name of Jesus Christ because you will see God working in other people's lives, and maybe you've been blind to how he has actually been working in your life. So serving others allows you to see God working probably through you or at least blessing other people to know that, yeah, he still exists. He still loves us. He's still showering us with grace every single day. So get your eyes off yourself and serve other people for their good and for the glory of God. Participate in the temple work, okay? The third thing I would encourage is maybe, maybe you haven't developed any kind of habit of thankfulness. And so let's attack that directly, right? Let's make a habit of practicing thankfulness for the sake of worshiping God, right? None of this is to make ourselves feel better because, again, that's back in that wrestler identity. All of this is to increase our affection for God. So maybe it looks like a, a journal of gratitude, right? Every day, right before you go to sleep, you write down five things that you are thankful for that God gave you that day. So you go to sleep, thankful to God. And then the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you read those same five things that you wrote down the night before so that you start your day in thanksgiving. And then you read the word of Christ after that because you want it to dwell in you richly, right? (laughs) All right? Now, there is one other thing that can increase your thankfulness. Maybe, maybe you need to sing more. Huh, maybe you need to sing more. 
right? So part of teaching and reminding others who God is has to do with singing, singing the truth of God's word. And we see that plainly in verse 16. It says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is a method of teaching and admonishing and encouraging and correcting. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm excused because, like, I don't really, like, I don't like it. And if I was supposed to do it, God would have helped me to like it. Or you might be thinking, well, phew, I sound like uh, the diff- like it's a combination of a bad running motorcycle and like nails on the chalkboard, depending on the song. So obviously God doesn't call me to sing because that's not a blessing to anybody. However, there is no asterisk. There is no exemption. This is a good command for all of us. Whether you sound beautiful or you sound like a seagull being tortured, right? (laughs) Because if it's genuinely done in worship of God, it's not a performance. You are not doing it to get the, the praise of man like a wrestler. You are doing it as a priest of God offering your sacrifice of praise. So why does Paul mention singing specifically here? Well, singing, the word, is a tool of teaching, right? When we sing the word, it teaches us theology and helps us remember the word. If you look at kids' shows, you see this principle. Kids' shows are more often than not more songs than speaking, right? That's because when you combine words and music, it makes memorization easier and it makes it more permanent. That's how the church used to do things before we got this really cool thing called literacy for everybody, right? (laughs) It's really great that we can all read our Bibles because then it's easier for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, but there was a time where not everybody had their own Bible, so they had to rely on congregational singing to reinforce their theology. The second thing is that singing the word unifies us in holy affection for God. It unifies us in holy affection for God. There's something very unique about singing with other people and seeing them and hearing them sing the same song as you are singing. I thought of my time uh, growing up. I was in junior high and high school in the 90s, and I was a huge Nebraska football fan. Uh, They were really good in the 90s. And so uh, I had this thing called a compact disc player. If you don't know what that is, you can come talk to me after the service. But it contained the Nebraska football fight song on it. So during the week, as I was driving around in my super cool Reliant K-Station wagon car, I would listen to the Nebraska fight song. That would stir my affections, increase my affections for Nebraska football. That was really good. But you know what was 100 times better than that? Going to Lincoln, Nebraska, to Memorial Stadium, and singing that same song with 76,000 other people. It was so awesome. I still get goosebumps on my, I have goosebumps on my neck right now. That's how powerful that experience is. So what's the problem? Nebraska has been terrible at football for the last 20 years, right? Back then, the song was even more powerful. The singing was more powerful because the team was always winning. The victory increased the affection for the team. Since the team stinks, I still like the song, right? But it's not the same because they stink. Now, what's even better than that? What's even better than that is I can drive around in my car right now and listen to Psalm 90, Satisfy Us With Your Love. I can sing that in my car throughout the week, and I'll even get choked up when I'm by myself. But do you know what's even better than that? coming here on Sunday and singing Psalm 90 with all the other priests of God as we worship God together. That chokes me up. It's so powerful. This is a unique creation of God. Singing is a unique creation of God given to us for the purpose of worshiping him. It's a very, very special tool. It's not something that we thought of, right? Adam and Eve weren't sitting around after they did all the work and like, so bored. We don't have any iPhone, so, oh, singing, we should try singing. No. 
We serve a singing God. He sang first, and we sing back to him. If you think about the passage that John brought up in Zephaniah 3, it's a picture of God, not some uh, choir boy, some dainty choir boy. This is a picture of a warrior king singing over us. He is a mighty warrior king, and he sings over each one of us because he delights in us. And so it's our privilege to sing back to him. It's such a beautiful picture. Now, going back to the wrestler-priest contrast, when you look at the music, there is a huge difference. What happens when a wrestler enters the arena? It's entrance music, right? So what statement is that music making? That statement is, everybody, look at me. You guys all gathered together to look at me. And how should you look at me? Well, you can either worship me, you can lust after me, or you can be envious of me. Because I'm barely wearing any clothes, and so my immodesty is meant to provoke an unrighteous response from you. That's the statement. It's not any softer than that. It is meant to provoke an unrighteous response. Now, praise God that our music isn't like that. Our music, our congregational priest music, is meant to provoke righteous responses, right? We call each other to worship God and to do it in holiness. So that is unifying worship. So there's a second key way that I see that we participate, and that is in collective holiness. We participate in unifying worship and collective holiness. If you go back to verse 16, it says, teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. But what's the goal of that? The goal of that is holiness. And we see that worship is directly affected by our holiness. It's directly related to our holiness. And we should be serious about holiness because God loves us and he tells us to be serious about it. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, this is a message to believers. There is holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what is this holiness? Well, it's essentially wrapped up in sacredness and apartness. So sacredness has to do with a special thing used for a special purpose. Apartness has to do with being separated from something that's filthy for the purpose of purity or for the purpose of preserving the high value of the thing being set apart. So I think of fine china, right? We inherited some china from one of my grandmothers. Uh, we don't use it in the same way that we use all of our other dishes, right? We don't store it next to the lawnmower in the garage. Why is that? because it's kind of a holy thing, right? We don't use it to hammer nails. We don't give it to toddlers as toys because it's special. It's a special thing that actually makes other things special, right? When we bring out the fine china for a meal like Thanksgiving, part of the significance of the event is represented by the fine things that we bring out, right? And the fine things that we bring out add to the specialness of the event. So that is the picture of what we're called to. Again, we're not called to drudgery. We are called to holiness, which is enjoying God and mimicking him in his holiness. So we do this in two ways. We do this individually. And it's this simple. We, we keep God's commandments. This is Jesus in uh, John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we're, again, we're just mimicking Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So now we see holiness isn't a goal unto itself. It's actually to enter in and, um, and remain in the joy and love 
of our Trinitarian God. So, God's command to be holy is actually his command to be happy. Isn't that good? <laughs> and we all know that holiness is connected to happiness. I will prove it. Right? When you're in a relationship, do you hope that the other person sins as much as possible? Or do you want a relationship that's as free from sin as possible? When you're looking for a house, you look up the crime statistics and you're like, Phew, I want the neighborhood that's got like 12 gangs in it and the life expectancy is like 27 years. No, because we know instinctively, even though we might have not made the connection intentionally, that holiness is connected to happiness. And conversely, sin robs us of happiness. So as priests, it's not just individual holiness that we're called to, but it's also a collective holiness. We're to participate in collective holiness. And collective holiness is just an exercise in love to God and to one another. But what's most important is the definition of love, right? We can't bring our own definition of love into it. We must let the word of Christ define what love is. Again, Kevin DeYoung is very helpful. He says, he writes, love does not equal unconditional affirmation. That should ring familiar to you because that is the gospel of the day. Unconditional affirmation. You need to accept me for whatever I decide to be, whatever I decide to do, you need to accept that. And when you do that, you love me. And Jesus lovingly, mercifully says, no, no, it's not good for you. Love entails, biblical love, godly love, entails the relentless pursuit of what is for our good. And our good is always growth in godliness. I could also say our growth is always in holiness. So an important part of our teaching and admonishing is to remain in that priestly identity, right? We might be tempted when we see the opportunity to teach and correct, to jump on that in our wrestler identity and say, oh man, I can't, make, I can't wait to smack some people over the head with the Bible today, <laughs> right? That's not what we're called to. Remember, this collective holiness is in the context of unifying worship. It's not divorced from the greatest commandments. We love God, and then we love our neighbor. That's within this context. So it's not tyrannical, and it's not abusive. We seek their holiness because we want them to love God more. Now, it is a command, though, right? We are called to this collective holiness in Hebrews. Hebrews is one example. There's more than this. But Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, it says, Take care, brothers. Be very careful, Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, teach, admonish, correct, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, which if you're keeping track, that's all of, all of the days, right? So what's the purpose? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the threat of sin's deceitfulness is real. Otherwise, this warning wouldn't be in Scripture. It's a real threat. But it doesn't have to be our destruction if we are participating in collective holiness and pointing each other to Christ. So how do we do this? It's essentially readiness. We have to constantly keep our hearts ready. Ready for what? Ready to give teaching and encouragement and correction and admonishing. Ready to receive teaching and correcting and admonishment. And that can be hard because of the deceitfulness of sin, right? Sometimes the soil of our hearts gets really hard so that the water of the word doesn't penetrate 
and then that results in more of that wrestler identity behavior, right? It has to do with our desires, and those bear fruit in actions. So how do we do this? How do we maintain the readiness of our hearts? Well, unsurprisingly, it's being in the Word. It's letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, and we see this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says that we're given this Word for a purpose. So all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, so that the man of God may be ready for the work of collective holiness, right? That's why the put-off, put-on lists that we see in Colossians 3 are so important, because we're essentially putting to death those things which are robbing us of holiness and happiness, why would we want to be robbed of those things, right? And then we're using the mirror of God's word to help other people do the same. Never are we calling them to look at ourselves. Hey, you stink. You need to be more like me. No, that's wrestler. It's wrestler identity, right? We use the word of Christ to point people to Christ. He is the standard. And it's a good thing because I'm not a good standard and none of you are either right? <laughs> so that's why we call each other to Christ, to the throne of grace. Now, it's not just not doing those things. It's also doing the things that promote holiness and happiness, right? So we practice our identity as priests in this collective holiness. So what are some examples? How do we do this in real life? Well, because we're more concerned about the other person's heart we need to try to do this in the appropriate environment, okay? So this isn't about public shame, it's about personal and collective holiness. So if we have an issue that we see in somebody else's life, we wanna make sure that that happens in the most private way possible, okay? That is the goal, it can't always happen like that, but the goal is privacy because that emphasizes care for them and it emphasizes their personal holiness and our collective holiness. The second thing is, instead of leading with accusations, we lead with observations and questions, okay? I am a human being. I can see things and process information with my brain, but I can't see your heart, okay? So because I care about you in this collective holiness, if I'm concerned about something, I'm gonna say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Hey, this is something I've noticed it seems like that might be a harmful thing to do. Like, what's actually going on, right? So by avoiding leading with accusations, then that's probably going to make them more willing to talk to me because they won't think I'm some bully, right? So I'm inviting them to talk to me, not so that I can feel good about being a problem solver, but again, it's about the worship of God. So questions and observations to encourage holiness to encourage reflection on their part. Because at a certain point, I can only say so much, and it's up to the Holy Spirit, who is always active, to be working in them, and to be working in me as I uh, try to teach and admonish them and encourage them, okay? All of this is anchored in the Word, right? That goes back to the wisdom part. If we don't start in the Word, we can't end in wisdom and constructive things, right? So it has to be anchored in the word. It must be bathed in prayer. We need to go to the Holy Spirit so that our hearts are prepared to teach or correct or encourage or admonish. We need to make sure we're in the right place so that what we're doing isn't harmful, right? Now, I'm not saying we're gonna get it perfect every time, and that's where the grace comes in. That's where the list in Colossians 3 comes in, where we bear with one another, bear with one another and forgive one another, right? But we also need to do the correcting. We need to do the encouraging. It is about collective holiness. And that starts with the word and prayer. Now, how we do this depends on the situation, right? We see different examples from Jesus. Jesus confronted sin in different ways. Some of them might seem 
harsh to us. But we have to think about and consider why are they included in Scripture. So, when Jesus uh, was brought a woman caught in adultery in John 8, right, there was these there were these religious leaders, they caught this woman in adultery, they brought her to him so he could condemn her publicly. So what happens? He actually addresses both parties. He firmly addresses the religious leaders because they did it with the wrong heart. They were essentially wrestler identity, bringing her so that she could be as ashamed as possible in public before she was stoned. So he addresses that. And then when everybody leaves, he demonstrates this privacy Characteristic, right? When everybody leaves, then he softly confronts her sin. He doesn't minimize her sin, but he points her to holiness in tenderness because her heart was already tender, right? She was already caught in the act. She was publicly shamed. He didn't need to be hard with her. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is in John chapter 2. We see Jesus' response to unholiness in the temple, right? And again, Jesus was completely filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit in John 8. He was completely filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit in John 2. So what does he do in John 2? He makes a whip of cords. He, he whips the people out of the temple, and he whips the animals out of the temple, right? That differential there is intentional, Okay, you might think, I don't know, like, is that right? Did Jesus sin? But it's in there for our instruction. So what is that instruction? It means we need to be wise in the situation. We need to love God's holiness. And the truth is, you don't flip through the Gospel of John and every other page, Jesus is whipping somebody, right? That's not true. He did it once, but more often than not, he was as soft as possible. He was as tender as possible with people, but that's not always possible because he was wisely applying the word of Christ to real life. And so when we look at this and we're called to follow in obedience, this is not a prescriptive passage, meaning Jesus whipped people, therefore I am called to whip people. No, no. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what the Bible is saying. What it is saying is, do we care about holiness? Do we care about somebody's eternal soul? Right? There's a verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Does that compute? Now, if they're a true friend... They're not wounding you all the time, right? Friendship does not consist in just beating the mess out of each other. But true friendship, rooted in biblical truth, in worship of Jesus, means when the situation calls for it, we need to say hard things to another person who has a hard heart in that situation, right? That is not the norm, but it might need to happen. Right? So we do that in humility and wisdom. So the takeaway is that Jesus used very soft words for very soft hearts, and sometimes he used hard words for hard hearts. Okay? Now again, we must be on guard for this wrestler identity to pop up. We cannot do any of these things if we do it in anger. Right? I should not discipline. I, should, I am called to discipline my kids by the Bible. But if I do it in anger, then I'm disobeying the Bible because I'm not calling them to, to uh, follow Christ, right? The anger is all pointed at me. It's wrestler identity. I'm disciplining you in anger because you wrecked my kingdom. No, no, it's all about God's kingdom. Holiness leads to happiness, okay? And again, this is in the context of unifying worship. This isn't a contest to see who can go around and correct the most people, right? It's collective holiness because we're constantly serving and loving one another generously, showing in the sacrifice that we care about that person, which then opens the door 
so that we can correct that person in love appropriately, okay? None of that is divorced from the service and the worship, okay? And that brings us to the last section. So when we as priests participate in temple work according to the word of God, then we can always be in a state of celebration, right? We as God's people should be the most celebratory people on the face of this earth. Look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's the holiness aspect, right? You can't do sin in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's not just about not doing the bad stuff. We do things in the name of Jesus because we're thankful and we love him. We see what he's done for us. So the image that came to my mind to describe this celebration is found in 2 Corinthians 2. And it's essentially a victory parade. When we are raised in Christ and made a part of his family, we are invited to march in a victory parade for the rest of our lives. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 2. It says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It's a victory parade. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Nobody apart from the work of God, right? So as we march, we invite. We invite others to join us in walking in this newness of, of life, in submission to Jesus, okay? So our victory parade is different from other parades, right? I like to watch the Colorado Avalanche play ice hockey. They won the Stanley Cup this year. And like every other championship team, after they won, they had a victory parade in the city that they're from. Right? So what, what are the characteristics of that parade? Obviously, the team is in the parade, and there are many, many people either watching or cheering for them as they parade. Now, there is a distinct line that cannot be crossed between those in the parade and those outside the parade. It was the team that won the championship. Therefore, they get to be in the parade. There is no inviting, hey, here's this random uh, bro, so if he can come join the parade. No. Because what qualifies you for the parade is winning the championship on the team. Well, our victory parade is different. We didn't win the championship, right? Jesus was victorious over sin and death. He walked the obedient life. He went to the cross. He conquered sin and death and was raised to new life. It's his victory. He's the only one in the original parade. All of us got invited into it. That's the beautiful picture of the temple of God, right? And not only were we invited into it, given everything we need to march in the parade, but that we are then given the ministry of reconciliation that continues to call others in, right? It's not up to us if they accept or not. Some may accept. That's the life to life. Some may not accept. That's the death to death. But we leave that up to God. We are faithful in our call for others to repent and leave their life of sin and misery and to come enjoy the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, in the new life that we walk in. That's our parade. Our parade also doesn't resemble one of these sinful pride parades that we see every June, right? We must maintain our holiness because we love God, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 6 we're not going to celebrate that which, call, which God calls sinful. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Because when we rejoice at wrongdoing, again, holiness is connected to happiness. And when we go off the rails, we are actually robbing ourselves of happiness in God. So we've looked at the richness of God's word. It's important that we as priests have the word of God dwelling in us richly because it's our life, it's our joy, it's our flourishing. It protects us from evil and destruction. 
We've also looked at the necessity to participate, right? We've been given everything so that we can pour out into others. And through that, we receive back from God. It's a beautiful equation. And finally, we're called to mar march victoriously, right? Life in Christ is not the worst life ever, and everything stinks, and everybody's unhappy. That's not life in Christ. Life in Christ is a victory parade every single day until we die and go be with him forever in a sinless environment, completely in his presence with no veil over our faces, completely beholding him in all his glory, in all his love for us. That's the parade that we're in if we're in Christ today. So let's go. Let's live as holy, happy priests for Christ. Let's pray.